It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. We are in the middle of a series called 1940, and this is episode three out of seven. It's called The Radicalization of Disgust. You know that when you're disgusted with something, it can lead to some pretty extreme behaviors. And you see that in our current culture even right now, where there is a correction of wrongs in the past. But what we could say is there's an overcorrection oftentimes that takes place. And throughout history, this is a very normal pattern where something that maybe was good in the beginning turns bad. It goes to an extreme. And then to solve that, there is a correction or, as I just said, an overcorrection. And this can lead to, again, a great vulnerability. And so as I've been focusing in this series, it's like a throwback series that parallels with my uh, my 93 episodes that I gave in 2020 on World War II or spiritual lessons from World War II. But this is just the very beginning portion of that. Uh, So if you understand World War II, this is the portion leading up to what we call 1940, which is why uh, the series is actually called that, because in 1940, Great Britain, something is going to change. There is going to be a revival of sorts that is going to cause a very very lazy, self-absorbed nation to transform into a war machine. And if I could say it as simply as possible, it would be, this is what the Church of Jesus Christ needs. We need to awaken from our stupor and take up the weaponry that we have been entrusted via the shed blood of Jesus and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and live robustly in such a time. We are not a war machine in the sense that we're taking on physical enemies. We're a war machine in the sense that we are built to tackle spiritual obstacles and see them torn down. And I would say the church is not functioning in its full state of what God intended it to do, and we could really use uh, an infusion. But what we see here is still the study of what is going to cause the breakdown of this nation called Great Britain, which is going to leave it at the mercies, if you will, of the Nazis uh, in 1939. It's not looking good. Italy has the has their thumb over uh, Great Britain, and uh, Hitler is having his way. And the, the British government is playing along. Oftentimes, like, we can see our own souls play along because we crave peace. You see, the disgust in this scenario was a disgust with something known as war. The British people were so disturbed, so were the French, with what had happened in and through World War I. They wanted their life back. They didn't like what had happened. They had lost an entire generation of men. And so the thought of dealing with Hitler with anything but passivity and, hey, peace, peace, peace at all costs actually was very offensive to this people. So as a result, because of their disgust with what had taken place through World War I, you're going to see this radical removal of any possibility of going to war against Hitler, which is going to lead to a passivity and it's going to lead to a breakdown and ultimately empower the enemy in the process. So that's what we're going to talk about today. 2 Corinthians 10.4, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. I'd say many of us would actually say, uh, so we have weapons? 
and they're, they're weapons of warfare that are not carnal, they're not earthly, they're not of this natural realm, but they're mighty in God, and they have a usefulness, and this is just one of them, for pulling down strongholds. Wouldn't that be nice? There are a lot of strongholds being erected in our inner lives, in our marriages, in our families, and in this culture, but we have actually been given something. Weapons is what the Bible calls them, so that we can address these things. However, to address them, this is a form of warfare, the weapons of our warfare. And so when you have that disgust from something that's taken place in your life, where you end up overcorrecting to the point where it's just like, hey, you know what? We don't fight battles. Hey, we just don't do this. You end up losing the feistiness of what God intended the church to be doing. Ephesians 6.13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. There is something that God has supplied us that we are intended to take up, to utilize, to wield. And so we see it as weapons of warfare. We also see it as armor. And armor is useful in battle, in war. And so we have been called to participate in a war. But it's interesting because very similar to 1939 Great Britain, I would say that much of the church today has a similar distaste in its mouth towards war and battle. I guess I don't blame you. It's not that I'm a big fan of it either, or that I want to go out and engage in battle. However, the battle we are called to engage in isn't a physical one, it's a spiritual one. And if you do not engage in it, the enemy will eat you for lunch. It is essential that we are engaged in this battle. So I'm going to go through a list of truths. The first one, you can have weapons and not use them. Isn't that just a fascinating meditation just right there? You can have weapons and not use them. So we've been given weapons of warfare. We've been given armor. Does, but it is possible to have something and not use it. You could have a sword and not swing it. You could have a shield and not lift it up. You could have armor and not clothe yourself in it. And I would say this is the phenomenon that many of us have grown up in. We've grown up in a church that espouses these things. We know we have weapons of warfare. We know we have armor. However, we esteem the scripture that references them, and we don't necessarily employ their usefulness. Here's another truth. You can have armor and not put it on. You can have a victory, a total hold over your enemy, and not exercise it. You can have your enemy totally weakened and keep him that way, but you can also enable your enemy to rebuild strength and to regain positions that he rightfully and legally has lost. So this is the, actually the story of World War II. World War I is going to devastate the German Empire. And yet the German Empire is going to be ticked off. They are going to be really restless under the weights of the Versailles Treaty. And they're going to be looking for every opportunity to retaliate, to get back at the Allies. And the Allies, they feel sort of guilty for what they have done. And so as a result, when Germany begins to rise back up, to stand back up on its feet, the, the Allies actually feel guilty and like they must have done a little too much in, in burdening the German Empire because the whole goal was to not allow the German Empire to regain its warlike uh, state and condition. However, when Germany begins to violate the Versailles Treaty, when it begins to stretch uh, you know, the, the bounds of things, the, the British and the French look the other way because they have such a disgust for war 
that they do not want to actually resist what is taking place in Germany, lest it start yet another war. And this is a very common thing that takes place inside of us. If you've ever gone through a fracas or a battle in your life spiritually because you took a stand, because you said no to something or you said yes to something, whichever way it could be, because of your stand for Jesus, you received persecution, you received false accusation, you received some burden in your life that wouldn't have been there if you just kept your mouth shut. You see, when you go through that, we could call it a ripe situation for the radicalization of disgust, because what you went through probably ranks up there as one of the most difficult things you've experienced in your life, and you do not want to return to it. So as a result, you have a tendency to overcorrect in the situation. Okay, if me standing in this situation, if me speaking in this situation caused this, well, then I know what not to do next time. Another truth. You can have the sort of truth that sets men free and not swing it. If you have the victory, why would you be afraid to use it? This is a very interesting study to study this 20 years before World War I and World War II because the Allies have a significant victory. They are in a position of total control over the German Empire. The Germans pose a great threat to what Europe uh, has always been. And the Allies are in a position to keep them at bay. And so if the Allies have a victory, why would they be afraid to use it? Well, I think it falls into the same category that we have, that we walk in. And that is, we have the victory of the cross. But to use it, first of all, it takes a lot of energy. Uh, we have to purposely do it. And to wield the weapons of our warfare actually doesn't always translate well in the culture in which we live. Because we are making a stand and making a statement that something is wrong and that we are standing for truth in the midst of that wrong or, or shining light in the midst of darkness. And that doesn't translate well and it leads to discomfort and it leads to opposition and resistance. And many of us would just prefer ease and peace and we do not want to ruffle feathers or to incite challenge. Because to keep evil at bay, you must exert the authority you possess. You see, if you're going to wield the authority that we have over the devil, over all of his kingdom, we have been given something at the cross. It is not something we worked up. It's something he worked. And then by faith, we access it. And this is one of the great privileges of being one of, a child of God via the shed blood of Jesus and faith in his work is we are actually given his position. So he is seated at the right hand of authority and we are in him by faith. And therefore, where he sits, we sit. And all things are beneath his feet in, in a strange and amazing way. We're in him. So therefore, where he's seated, we're seated in we share in his feet. We are the body of Christ. And so what his feet are over, our feet spiritually are over. And so why would we not wield that? Why would we not use that? Because to keep evil at bay, we must exert the authority that we possess, lest the enemy rebuild, the enemy regain his old positions. So you must not, and this is a quick short list that would be good for you to remember, you must not overlook your enemy's aggressive movements. You must not excuse his blatant violations. There are certain things the enemy is not lawfully allowed to do. He is not allowed 
to invade your life. He's not allowed to build a stronghold in your soul. This is not his territory. This belongs to Jesus Christ. However, your passivity, if you do nothing, he will encroach and he will take as much space as you allow him to, which is why we must resist. It says, resist the devil and he will flee. There is a point that we must exert, and that takes energy. Oh, it just does. And it is so much easier just to be passive. However, passivity will destroy your soul in in engagement with the devil, whereas activity and the active engagement of saying, I know the authority I have in the name of Jesus, and I use it and apply it directly towards this situation. You must not turn a deaf ear to his evil designs. You must not turn a blind eye towards his treatment of the weak or supply him with military goods. I mean, this would just make sense. I mean, if you're going to talk to Great Britain and France and say, okay, you have the victory over Germany in World War I, so you cannot, over these next 20 years, overlook his aggressive movements. You must not, over these next 20 years, excuse his blatant violations and turn a deaf ear to his evil designs or turn a blind eye towards his treatment of the weak or supply him with military goods. And yet that is exactly what Great Britain and France are going to do. They are going to do the exact opposite of this, as we often do as well. There are very specific things that God is asking us to do. How many times have we heard the scripture that we are supposed to think on these things? And then Paul lays out the list, you know, things that are noble, things that are of good report, things that are pure. And yet what do we think on? In other words, we have been given a very clear map for how the human brain is supposed to function, what we are to meditate upon and think upon. And yet we don't do that. We think on things that God explicitly goes out of his way to say, don't think on that. And yet we have our reasons, just like Great Britain and France had their reasons for why they were allowing Hitler to rebuild Germany. So here's a strange fact. A million tons of military goods were stripped from Germany in 1919. It's the Treaty of Versailles. They lost, I mean, they lost a lot of their military strength. You would say all of their military strength, but they were left with this little diddly squat amount. Now, a million tons of military goods were stripped from them in 1919. But listen to this. But 1.5 million tons, which is more than they were had stripped from them, of military goods were then lent to Germany by the U.S. and Great Britain in the forthcoming years. Who built the military machine that Hitler ran? Well, the U.S. and Great Britain. Isn't that one of the most odd thoughts to realize that the very ones that have the victory are the very ones that feel bad for the one that they have a victory over, and so they're going to lend their strength to them and actually enable them. Uh, It's amazing. It's funny what we as humans will do to avoid going through the same traumatic season twice. I've seen this same potential in my life, too, that when I have experienced a burn, like say I grab the iron and it's hot and I burn myself, I am now extra sensitive to that iron. And so I'm extra watchful as I engage with it. If you ever have ever had, had a hot iron burn in your life, just experientially, wherever it goes, you have a tendency to want to stay away from that hot iron. I don't blame you. It just makes sense. It's what humans do. And so when you know that certain behaviors could lead to that burn sensation again, You will do whatever you can do to avoid that experience. And this is precisely what is taking place. The revulsion and the repulsion towards war is so strong in Great Britain at this time, in the 1930s, that when Hitler is doing what he is doing, he knows that. And he knows that they will avoid war at all costs. So he takes advantage 
of their repulsion, the same way the enemy does in our life. To mention the dangers and threats of Hitler in 1935. So 1939 is when World War II is going to start. But to mention the dangers and threats of Hitler in 1935, so this is four years before the, the war begins, it was deemed warmongering or fearmongering. The two worst things you could ever do would be a warmonger or a fearmonger. And so if anyone ever brought it up, like uh, Hitler seems to be encroaching, I, I think he's, he's uh, awakened conscription in his nation again, which means they can start to bring in troops and build a military. He's specifically outlawed not to do that according to the Versailles Treaty, but he's doing it. And so if you said anything about it, if you complained, if you called him out on it, oh, well, then you were, you know, the epitome of a warmonger or a fearmonger. And so as a result, everyone kept their mouth shut, all but Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill was the classic picture of the guy who's like, hey, guys, I know you don't want to hear this, but we need to deal with Hitler. And everyone's like, no, no, no. And they're you know, putting their fingers in their ears and making noise, saying, no, 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 we do not need to deal with Hitler. So how to avoid war? Here was the primer. Uh, this is the way that every nation was thinking about it at that time. Now, if you have the ability to socially draw this back into our day and age, you'll see the same mentalities. No nation's military power should be greater than another's. That was the premise of the time. So if you're going to avoid war, then since Great Britain has such military strength and France has such military strength and, and Germany doesn't have a lot of military strength, well, then no nation's military power should be greater than another's. This leads to point two, stronger power should disarm to the level of the weaker powers. So if you have greater strength than uh, your ancient foe over here, well, that's unfair. And so you should give up your strength to the level that they're at. You need to overlook all aggression on the part of the weaker powers and chalk them up as reasonable and necessary responses, bringing correction for past oppressions. It's a very common thing in our culture today is the very same behavior, the very same thinking patterns. And so as a result, this was the logic in the 30s for how to avoid war. What's interesting is they're going to end up not just not avoiding war, but entering into the greatest war that ever happened. And so what we oftentimes in our own human minds think is helpful is actually the exact opposite of helpful the disgust of war. So when you have this, it is, it can lead you to some radical uh, ideas. War is pain. War is destruction. War is loss. War is instability. War is discomfort. War is misery. Therefore, war is to be avoided at all costs. Now, for those of you that are like me, you're not a big fan of war, you could look at that list and just nod along and say, that's true, that's true, that's true, that's true. And I'm not going to argue I'm not going to argue that war isn't pain, that it isn't destruction, loss, instability, discomfort, and misery. However, when all you have is that as your conclusion, you don't recognize that war also has a reasonable play uh, part to play in the order of nations. And so let's look at the proper use of war. War is a deterrent to evil. In other words, when Hitler is making his move through Europe, he was waiting to see if Great Britain and France would do anything, if they would do something, he wouldn't have taken Austria. If they would do something, he wouldn't have taken the Sudetenland. If they would do something, he would definitely not invade Czechoslovakia, which is what started World War II. So therefore, his entire 
antics, his thoughts, his scheming had to do with the fact that would his opponent fight? If his opponent won't fight, he will progress. If they will, it's the deterrent and he will not invade. So there is a proper use of war in the sense that it is a deterrent to evil. It is a protection of innocence. It is a, war is a vigorous stand for liberty. War is often the only means of peace. War is a direct response to a hostile foe that refuses to veer from the path of destruction. And war is sometimes necessary. Therefore, war can be a righteous decision. You know, in Revelation, we're going to see Jesus Christ coming to make war against the nations. So I'm going to conclude just in the big picture that, yes, war can be a righteous decision, knowing that our God cannot make an unrighteous decision. That does not mean that war is not terrible. It just means that sometimes it is the means that God will even endorse to address a very real problem. A.W. Tozier has a quote that I have I have referenced many times in our ministry and in my life personally. The devil desires us to back into our belief system. So when you see a problem, like a doctrinal one over here, then you have a tendency to back into the opposite as the conclusion. Many people have done that with, say, like the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a very biblical concept. It's God, right? However, when you see how certain churches have handled the Holy Spirit and some of the weird things that have come out of it, you have a tendency to do the opposite and you back into your belief system instead of recognizing, no, that is an incorrect use of that truth. You have a tendency to back away to the point where you can't even deal with the Holy Spirit. You can't talk about the Holy Spirit. And if someone does talk about the Holy Spirit, they're just like these people. And that is actually the devil's tactic. And what he has done in 1939 is he has convinced Great Britain that to even address Hitler's situation with any threats of war is the most evil thing you could ever do. That war is inherently evil and there's no positives to it. And so as a result, they, Great Britain has backed into its belief system to say, just allow Hitler to do whatever he wants because war would be the evil response to it. So the example that I just brought up, which is an example I want to build on today, is the Holy Spirit. Even when I say the Holy Spirit to some of you, as you hear that, you get the EBGBs. You get that little uh, you know, thing up your spine that goes, e -e -e, I don't know that I like this. And I'm, I understand. I, I, I want to start by saying that. I, I do. I had a whole season of my life where I could not say the words, the Holy Spirit. And it's not that I didn't believe in the Holy Spirit. It's just that to talk about the Holy Spirit made me feel like I was entering into a camp that I was concerned about. And so as a result, though I could see it scripturally, I couldn't address it practically or theologically or doctrinally in any way. I just sort of had to leave it there. The Holy Spirit is an influence, but let's just leave it at that. And it was a huge moment in my life when I actually, I still remember a decision I made that I was going to talk about the Holy Spirit one night during a teaching. And it like took serious guts for me to do it because there was such a propensity for me to back into my belief system instead of go straight forward into the truth of God's word and say, okay, here's the truth. Let's take off the barnacles. Let's take off the lies. Let's separate that over here and let's deal with what God has truly declared. It's a hard thing to do with certain things. And that's just an example. There's a lot of those in Christianity. 
So to even mention the Holy Spirit could mean that you are one of those wild-eyed kooks that follows your emotions instead of the Word of God. How to avoid Holy Spirit weirdness. So this is the modern recipe, just like I gave you the primer of, for war. It's like, here's how to avoid war at all costs. Well, we sort of have the how to avoid the Holy Spirit weirdness in modern Christianity too. So here, here's a, a primer on that. Just don't bring him up. Avoid discussion about him at all costs. Change the phrase Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Well, that'll do it. Restrict tongues and prophecy and eliminate all talk of spiritual gifts. Make Christians feel unwelcome if they dare to press these points. You know what? I have to admit, that, that really does work. And you will not have Holy Spirit weirdness in your church. However, you also may not have the Holy Spirit in your church. And so there's a risk that we take as believers to say, Lord, I don't want the weirdness, but I really want you. And I want the authentic version. And we have a tendency to clip the wings on the authentic, just like we're seeing in 1930s, Great Britain is trimming the wings on war. And they're saying, war, no way. We cannot do it no matter what. No matter what Hitler does, we will not go to war. That is not the solution. We will talk it out. We will talk it out. We will talk it out. We will compromise. We will compromise. We will compromise. We will put up with whatever he's doing no matter what because that option is off the table. And whenever you come to a radicalization in your response and you overcorrect, you have a tendency to empower the very lie that you seek to that you sought to destroy in the first place. So the disgust of Holy Spirit weirdness. I, I really do get this, but here's the quick list for all of us to meditate upon afresh. The Holy Spirit can be unpredictable. Mm -hmm. The Holy Spirit can make people do things. The Holy Spirit creates division. Oh, does he? The Holy Spirit disturbs people in our body. The Holy Spirit leads to instability. The Holy Spirit distracts people from the text. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is to be avoided at all costs. I understand that list. It's, it's not true. That, what does all those things is a fleshly understanding or things that are mislabeled as the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does anything but that. However, that is a very common thought pattern that many of us in the church have had to work through and wrestle through. So let's go through the proper understanding of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. If you even know Jesus Christ, it's because the Holy Spirit revealed him to you. If you know the scriptures and the scriptures have come un, un, into your understanding, it's because the Holy Spirit brought you that understanding. The Holy Spirit is a gift from God to show us the person of Jesus. The Holy Spirit only speaks that which is in agreement with the word of God in text, the Bible, and in person, Jesus Christ. He never contradicts it. The Holy Spirit is the one that empowers a believer to actually live out Christianity. The Holy Spirit is the one that brings unity in the church. It doesn't bring division. He brings unity in the church. The Holy Spirit is the bringer of life and truth. Therefore, the Holy Spirit must not be prohibited from leading the church of Jesus Christ. So that's the proper understanding. And just like we see those tensions, when you have a radicalization of your disgust. You've seen something that was off and you've backed into your belief system. You have a tendency to come to the wrong conclusion. 
which then only enables the enemy to control the church because the only the, the church is meant to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, to be led by the Holy Spirit, to be discerning because of the Holy Spirit's involvement. And as a result, the enemy is able to overwhelm us because of our lack of defenses because we shoot away the very key defense that we have. Radical disarmament. That's what's happening in the 30s. Great Britain is trimming out all of their military strength. They have to come down to the level of Germany. What's going to happen, though? Germany, or I'm sorry, Great Britain and France are going to give up all of their arms, all of their military strength. Meanwhile, Germany is going to secretly be building theirs. And pretty soon, in 1939, a crisis comes. Why? Because Great Britain and France have no military strength. Why? Because they've been disarming. Meanwhile, Germany has been arming, and they are now the superpower on Earth. The very one that was defeated and had no hope of gaining its strength back has now become the military superpower and begins to eat up Europe. So here's radical disarmament. This is the way we oftentimes think in the church today, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. Disarmament doesn't make sense as Christians, even though we socially feel like we're responsible to do it. Let's lay down our chief weapon, our chief strength, our primary power, because in wielding the great strength of the Holy Spirit, we are making people in the church uncomfortable. Isn't that an ironic thing? The very thing that would make us stronger is the very thing that we are afraid to use, that we are afraid to bring up, that we are afraid to talk about because it has been misused in the past. Was war misused in World War I? Yes. Was the Versailles Treaty healthy? No. However, the response to the idea of war has become radicalized to the point where it can no longer be used. And if war can't be used, Hitler can't be stopped. And so as a result, you see the power of evil overwhelming Europe because Great Britain and France have come to a radicalized conclusion because of their extreme disgust with World War I. This can happen inside of us. Some of you, even on this topic, because we could have brought up other topics, but I brought up the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. He desires to live inside of us, to make this body his home, to cause this body to function as the body of Christ, to make these eyes see what he sees, to make this the mind of Christ, to make this tongue speak what he speaks, to make these hands serve as his hands would serve, to make this heart beat with his burdens, to make these feet go in this world wherever he would take them. That is Christianity. It's always been Christianity. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And yet, we, for whatever reason, have become sheepish on this point. Because we have seen abuses to this topic, to this theme of the Holy Spirit, we have backed into our belief system, as A.W. Tozier has said, and that's the devil's business. That's his game. That was his plan all along. If he can disturb this and get all of the conservatives to go, oh yeah, well, yeah, we don't want to have anything to do with that. Well, what do we have left? What is Christianity when it's not empowered by the indwelling Christ? What, what do you have left? By what strength are you going to produce the fruit of Jesus Christ in and through your life? How can you produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? You can't. 
You need a helper. You need someone who can do it, and that is God himself. And Jesus Christ has made a way for us to be filled with the life of God so that we can produce the fruits of righteousness, so that we can demonstrate who Jesus is. This is our key strength. This is our key power. This is what keeps the devil at bay. This is what keeps the devil out of the church. This is what keeps the devil out of our own thought lives, out of our own souls. We need to be indwelled. We need to be enabled. We need to be empowered. And yet we, to make sure that everyone around us is comfortable, really struggle to be armed in this way, to wear our armor the way we were designed to wear it. Yet it's high time that we get fit for battle. While we are disarming, the enemy is aggressively building up his military strength. So we can throw out our weapons of warfare and act like we don't have them. Meanwhile, our enemy that is defeated is building up his defenses against us, his grand schemes to undermine the church of Jesus Christ. And it's just high time that we get our game on, that we recognize that we have been given weapons, weapons of warfare that are mighty. Now, the Holy Spirit is the chief behind the, that weaponry, but that weaponry comes out in forms of obedience. It comes out in prayer. It comes out in rejoicing. There's a lot of different facets to the way we are supposed to live as military uh, soldiers, vehicles, carrying devices of the grand triumph and authority of the kingdom of heaven. But if we would just simply awaken to the fact that we do not want to be like Great Britain in the 1930s, justifying why we cannot stop this menace in the world. It's not our business. You know, hey, you know, let Germany have its way. Let it do what it needs to do. We have been given precisely what is needed for the hour in which we live. This is our time to be alive. We have been given the assignment. Let's awaken from our stupor and utilize the power and the authority found in the name of Jesus afresh. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.